Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10:30 a.m. both online and in person. We meet throughout the week in small groups and you can email small groups at faithonhill.com for more information. We have kids church on Sunday mornings, we pray together on Sunday mornings, and we worship together through song and we have connection and fellowship. Now, if you're online with us, we do have an online-only small group that meets on Wednesday nights, and you are welcome to be part of that, even if you are not with us in person. Now, today, I want to talk about karma in the book of Job. Now, this uh, sermon series is different than we normally do. We are going big overview, you know, view from 30,000 feet kind of situation. And so it assumes that you are familiar with or have recently read Job chapters 4 through 14. If you haven't, that's okay. You can go read it later. But the basic summary of those chapters is this. In chapter two, at the end of chapter two, Job has three friends. And these three friends, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they hear about all of Job's troubles and they go to be with him. And we talked last week about their success in ministering to their friend. They did some things right. And since we're going to spend the next two weeks at least talking about the things they did wrong, I think it's important to acknowledge last week, as we did, that they did some things really well. Now, that being said, this week and next week, we're going to talk about ways that they totally failed Job. They failed him as a friend. They failed him as a messenger of God. They failed him. And yet, we have lessons that we can learn. Now, I said a minute ago, I want to talk about karma. Karma is a Sanskrit word, and it means several things, but for our purposes, we'll go with the definition that says it means consequences of actions. And it is a concept that is found uh, throughout Indian and and other uh, religions of the subcontinent. Uh, this, this, This concept is found in Hinduism, it's found in Buddhism, it's found in Jainism, it's found in Sikhism, it's found in all of the different religions of the subcontinent, India, Pakistan, etc., It's also a concept that is universally accepted on some level. And here's what I mean by that. Universally accepted on some level. What I mean by that is this, that uh, karma as a concept, I believe, is a universal truth. It is a universal truth. There are things that are just universally true. There, There is no world religion, there is no world system of morality or philosophy that is like, you know what, go out and commit genocide. Uh, you know what, it's, it's, uh, everybody should just hate everybody. Like, like, generally speaking, it's like the apostle says in the book of Galatians, you know, the fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. Meaning nobody's gone out and made a law, so don't be kind, right? Now, there may be laws that have existed that have had the implication of not being kind. But nobody's made an anti-kindness law. You shall not be kind. And there are these universal truths. And so people will say, well, all religions have a little bit of the truth. And I agree with that in one sense, that all faiths, all systems of morality, all systems of philosophy have aspects of universal truth. What goes around comes around. 
What you reap, you will sow. These are things that our Lord taught. Was he teaching ideas of karma? Or is it that these consequences of action, which is where the word karma means, are a universal truth that, that is found just by living life? If, if you let bitterness fester in your life, it's going to have a consequence in your life. If you let uh, rage and anger rule your life, there will be consequences in the same way if you let peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, long-suffering, all of these things that are listed as the fruits of the Spirit of God working in our lives, that, that will reap benefits in the life of an individual. If you live by the Ten Commandments, it will reap benefits in a person's life and the world around them. So Job has these problems, and his friend, Elphaz, in Job chapter 4, he says, hey man, listen to me. And he says, you know what? You've been a guy who has encouraged people. You've been a source of encouragement, so listen to me. And in chapters 4 and 5, he starts to just kind of lay out, Job, something is off in your life, but if you go to God, it can be fixed. It can be restored. And there is a sense, I'm going to say this, chapter 4, chapter 5 of the book of Job, in a different situation, in a different context, it's actually very true. There are situations where what Elphaz is saying is true. The problem is not the, uh, his general idea. The problem is his application of this. He's basically saying, Job, your karma is bad. You've, you've done something bad, and now that's come back to haunt you. And, and what he says in chapter 5, verse 7, and then again in chapter 6, verse 17, is this implication that Elphaz makes that since good people don't suffer, that Job must have gone off track, but that he should rejoice in the correction of God. And there are certainly people who have gone on tra off track. God has brought correction in their life to bring them into repentance, and they should rejoice at that. But that's not what's going on here. Innocents do suffer. Innocent people do die. And what I mean by innocent is people who, who suffer not because of something they did, but for things that they didn't do. God wasn't correcting Job. This is very clear from chapters one and two of the book that God is not correcting Job. He is being attacked by Satan. So Elphaz might have some like correct ideas in general, but in the specifics in Job's life, he's wrong. God's not judging or correcting Job. And even his general ideas, while it might have some truth, he is wrong. Innocent people do die. People who you might say, oh, their karma's good. Why are they suffering? Because people suffer, as we talked about the other week, that we live in a broken world, one that is full of suffering. Elphaz comes and, and he, he, I think he means well. Out of all the three friends, Elphaz is the one who comes off looking the best. And I think he means well. I like to believe that. But he's wrong. And then Bildad, the second friend, comes. And he's not as nice. In fact, out of all the things that are said in these 10 chapters, what Bildad says in chapter 8, verse 4, he says to Job, because remember, Job's children all died in the same day. And he says, when your children sinned against God, he gave them over to the penalty of their sins. So what he's saying is don't, you shouldn't mourn your children's death. They obviously must have sinned against God. 
And in doing so, they brought the judgment upon themselves. So you should just say, hey, that's how it is. But here's the problem. Again, Job's children, while I'm sure they made mistakes, while I'm sure that they had things that they shouldn't have done, and, and all of that could be true, and yet we are told that they died not because of anything they had done. They died because of the work of an evil enemy. There's a reality. Sin will lead to suffering. That's totally true. But it wasn't the sin of Job's children that caused their death. And then they have this other friend. And he is just kind of a tool. Chapter 12, verse 5, Job actually calls him out and says, Zophar, you have contempt for me. He says, you're acting like you are superior to me. I'm down and you've come to kick me while I'm down. In fact, while Eliphaz comes with this big concept of, of basically what we would think of as karma, and while Bildad comes with this concept of the judgment of God against wickedness, Zophar basically just comes and says, you're bad, your kids were bad, and you should take it. And you get this idea that maybe Zophar, though counted among the friends of Job, wasn't really. That maybe Zophar himself had harbored jealousy, envy, resentment towards Job before this. And now that Job is down, he himself is piling on. That's the implication that I got after reading over and over, reading what he says to Job. He doesn't bring any theology to it. He doesn't bring any any bigger philosophy to it. He just basically comes and says, Job, you're bad, and you just got to accept that. It piles on. And all three of these friends, and, and by the way, I believe you don't travel the distances they did and do what they did last week's sermon and not be his friend. Now, Zophar may have had some stuff going on, but I, I genuinely believe that Eliphaz and Bildab were Job's friends but they failed him. And this week we're going to focus on them. And next week we will focus on Job's responses to them because in chapters four through 14, and then the next set of chapters next week, basically you have the three friends make an accusation against Job and then Job responds. And then they say, come on, Job, there must be some secret sin. There must be something that you have done to earn this punishment, this suffering from God. And this is why theology matters. This is why theology matters. Theology means the study of the things of God. Doctrine, biblical doctrine matters. Now you might say, oh, that's like deeper thinking stuff. I just want to know the gospel, what I need to know to be saved. What does God want from me and my family today? And I get that. And I do think that there are churches, and I think there are Christians who want way more than is reasonable to expect from the average Christian in terms of theological knowledge or debate or discussion. Most people don't care about anyone's theological stance on the end of the world. They don't care on, about somebody's theological step, stance on like uh, the regulative principle. And there are these things that go around and you know, people who, it, it's like guys who want to come off as really knowledgeable. And so they learn some big words and they're like, hey, what's your stance on the, uh, the, you know, the, the pneumatic history of atonement and the meta-narrative of the gospel? Those are just big words. 
At the same time, theology matters because what we think affects what we say, it affects what we do, it affects how we live, it affects how we interact. The bad theology of Job's friends led to them failing him as a friend. None of these friends were taking into account Satan. They weren't taking into account supernatural spiritual forces at work. They said, here's Job, here's God, and something's going wrong in Job's life. Therefore, this must be coming from God. And they were failing to account for the enemy. They were failing to account for a spiritual attack. And that matters. If you don't account for all of the things in the scripture, all of the parts of the Christian faith, then your theology will be bad. And then suddenly your actions, your words, your interactions will be off course. I think I've told this story before, but it's worth remembering. I heard this story once from somebody who had uh, gotten a job on a fishing boat. Now, uh, if you've ever seen like The Deadliest Catch or similar shows, they're all up in Alaska fishing, but a lot of them live down in Seattle. And, and there's a place you can go, the Ballard Bridge in Seattle, and you drive across, you look out, and you'll see all these fishing boats in the summer that come back, reload, get refitted, and then they go back up for the winter for the, the fishing and the crabbing and all that. So this guy had gotten hired uh, to be on one of these fishing boats going up to Alaska, and he was put in charge of one of the watches, and the captain just said, look, here's all you have to do. Make sure the boat stays on this heading. And he shows him the compass, says, I want you to go on this heading for the next five hours, and then somebody will come and relieve you, but just stay on this heading. And he did. He made sure the boat, no matter what, stayed on that heading with the compass. And five hours later, when his relief came, they looked at the GPS and they looked at the charts and all that stuff. And they said, we are off course by a lot. Where did you take us? He said, no, I kept us on this heading. And then the more experienced crew member looked and realized that somebody had placed something that was magnetic near the compass and they had pulled the compass off a few degrees. And at first, it was no big deal. For the first 15 minutes, 30 minutes, it wasn't a big difference. The difference in one or two degrees over 20 minutes, 30 minutes, not huge, but over hours and hours, big. When your theology is off, it can have serious consequences. And all of Job's friends believed that suffering must stem from some kind of personal wrong. Certainly, again, there are people who suffer because of their own sin. That is 100% true. But not all suffering comes from sin. You know, you remember the Gospels where they see a blind man and the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, who sinned? His mother, his father, his grandparents? Who sinned that caused this man to be born blind? And Jesus said, none of that. He was just born blind. They had this theology, they being the disciples, had this theology that was common in their culture that said, if you are born with some sort of deformity or disability or something going on like that, it was because your parents sinned. And as judgment for your parents' sin, you were born blind or deaf, or you were born with a deformed arm, or you were deformed this, or, that, or you were born this or that. And Jesus said, that's, that's not how it works. 
we're, we're, we're born into a broken system. And his mother or father didn't do this to him. This was just being born. Now, certainly there are children who are born because of their parents' sin with challenges. There are children who are born because of fetal alcohol syndrome and, and their parents' uh, uh, substance abuse, that they are born with challenges, with, 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 a, with a bad hand being dealt to them. That's 100% true. But in this other case, you're saying, no, this guy was just born blind. It just happened. Nothing, nothing caused it. All of Job's friends believed that suffering and Job's suffering must have come from some personal wrong. And if you have that theology, then imagine how you will interact with somebody who's in the midst of pain, who's in the midst of suffering. They're like, Job, your karma's bad. Job, your personal life is bad. Uh, something that both Bildad and Zophar talk about is, hey, what's going on inside your tent? Meaning, hey, what's going on where nobody else can see? What have you set in front of your eyes? What's in there? We, we know from the Old Testament that there are stories of people hiding idols in their tent. Outside, it looks like they worship God, but hidden away in their tent, in their personal belongings, their idols. You know, maybe there's something immoral happening inside your tent. Maybe there's something happening that no one else can see, and so that must be what it is. So their bad theology that suffering must be linked to personal wrongdoing affected how they minister. Bad theology can affect in our day how we minister. There are theologies that say Christians must always have victory. We talked about this the other week. And so then you can't go uh, get help when you're having mental health struggles because obviously our theology says we always have victory as if Christians can never get sick, as if Christians can never struggle, as if Christians can never suffer. Christians do get sick and they have not sinned. Christians do have mental health issues and they have not sinned. That is 100% the way things are. But we have a theology that says, if that's our theology, oh, it's always victory. We're always living in the victory of God. We're always living in blessing as if living in the victory of God can't include health struggles, mental health struggles, personal challenges, as if somebody can't suffer just because we live in a world of suffering. I learned this firsthand when my dad got cancer. Well-meaning people said horribly insensitive things, if not outright hurtful and vindictive things. Now, I was able to take that, and then uh, a, friend of, a friend of mine got cancer, and I was able to basically, I had the relationship with him. I pulled him and said, hey, this is what, I'm just letting you know, the chances are you are going to hear stuff like this. And a little while later, came back and said, yeah, thank you for giving me the heads up. I didn't really believe you. And then people came out of the woodwork, people I wouldn't have expected. But because their theology, their, their doctrine, their belief system is about never suffering or su you know, some kind of illness, sickness comes only from sin, then they interacted poorly with him. They weren't encouraging to him. They weren't a blessing to him. They were like Job's friends. Another way that their theology was wrong is that they saw judgment, the judgment of God, as only being temporal temporary in this world and not eternal. Job, something's going bad in your life, so you must be being judged for it. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14 says that ultimately the judgment of God, even for the secret things, will happen at the end when God says no more. This world as we know it is done and I am going to judge the wicked and I'm going to reward the righteous. 
This is a reality. There are those of us who are suffering right now. In our church, people are suffering. In our church, we are connected to people who are suffering. And we might say, what is going on? Forgetting that our reward, our rest, has never been promised in this world. Our reward and our rest comes in eternity in the kingdom of heaven. At the same time, I know people who have literally gotten away with murder. Now, I won't go into specifics, especially online, but I know of people who have literally gotten away with murder. Everyone knows it was them. Police even will say, you know, if you, if you, if you got them, you know, especially if you had a couple in them, you know, they'd, be, they'd say, yeah, it was these guys. We just can't prove it. They were too good. And you look and you say, how is it that they get away with this? The Bible says they will not. But if you have a theology that sees everything as just here on this planet, and God's either going to bless you here or judge you here, and if he doesn't do it here, then it's not going to happen. That's a poor theology. The, the scripture says that, yes, we, we can live in the natural consequences. You can call it karma if you want. But the natural consequences of our decisions here in this world, but ultimately judgment and reward are eternal things. You might look and you might say, how is it that that guy got away with it? How is it that that woman did those things or didn't do those things and she got away with it? Judgment and reward are eternal things. But because Job's friends had a poor theology of the eternal, because they had a poor theology of the supernatural and the demonic, because they had a poor theology about suffering, because they had a poor theology about sin and righteousness and all these things, they interacted with Job in a way that was detrimental, that was harmful, that, that was really the opposite of what Job needed. They weren't good friends to him, and it came from their theology. Now, I think the final question then you'd ask is, okay, so here's Job, and he's going through all this suffering, and he's done nothing wrong, and now his friends are piling on, accusing him of wrongdoing because of their bad theology. The question I would ask myself then is, how do I avoid being like Job's friends? If I interact with somebody who is suffering, if I interact with somebody who is going through hardship and trial, how do I avoid being like Job's friends to them? How can I be an encouragement to them? Or how do I know if I do need to speak a hard word? Because like I said earlier, in a different situation, in a different context, a lot of the things that Eliphaz especially said were, were pretty good, pretty true in people's lives. I have found this to be the case. I will be the first to say that I don't claim to have a perfect doctrine or theology or understanding of, of the Bible. I think I have a pretty good handle on it, but I don't think I have a perfect one. No, I don't think anybody does. So humility is the first step. A humility that says, I don't have all the answers. By the way, Job's friends started in that humility last week when they showed up, they saw his despair, and then they were just silent. And, they, and, and the only sound coming from was, them was that they wept with him. They had compassion with him and for him. And if they had stayed in that place of humility and compassion and, and, and grief with him, then they would have been a lot better off. And so would Job. Job would have been a lot better off. But because 
that humility at some point seemed to go away. And then they came with their pre-established opinions about everything. And then they start, hey, this is what you got to do. This is what you got to do. This is what caused this. That was the moment where things broke down. So I can be the first to say, can I have the humility to say, I don't know everything. And somebody might come along and think they're being helpful, and they're just not. Let me, let me give you an example on this. One of the ancient classic debates within Christian theology is this idea of once you become a Christian, are you always saved? There's a phrase you might have heard, once saved, always saved. And I have found that where you land on that debate it depends a lot on, on how you yourself became a Christian. It also lands a lot on what makes you personally comfortable. That's just what I'm going to say about that. But I know people who believe once you are saved, you are always saved. And if you were part of the church and now you deny the faith, then that means that you were never really saved to begin with. I have a lot of problems with that theology. But this is something that a lot of good, Jesus-loving, faithful Christians believe. Okay? I know of somebody whose two of his children walked away from their faith as adults. And he was talking with another Christian. And, and that well-meaning person said, oh, it's okay. They weren't saved to begin with. How is that helpful? How does that, how does that bless or support or bring comfort to another Christian brother who is hurting? It doesn't. But because he has this pre-established theology and doesn't have the humility to recognize that, you know what? Maybe it's not helpful right now. Or the humility to say, you know what? I don't know everything. He blasts in with it and causes more grief and more pain and more anger for this brother who is suffering, just like Job's friends do. So if I say, I don't want to be like Job's friends, I'm going to say this. First is I want to have a humility to know that I don't know everything and a humility to say, maybe I'm going to come across a situation of suffering that doesn't fit my theology, but I'm going to know that God is good and Jesus is real and the Holy Spirit is working even if I can't see it. The second way that I can avoid being like Job's friends is to get better theology. There's a story and it's apocryphal, but you know, there's this story about the FBI trains uh, people on how to spot counterfeit money, not by showing them counterfeit money, but by showing them the real thing. I think that's an apocryphal story. At the same time, it's totally true. I used to have a job where I would literally have tens of thousands of dollars pass through my fingers on a daily basis. It was not uncommon for me to have twenty or $30,000 pass through my hand. I wasn't even working at a bank, right? It was just the job I was working at. I know what real money feels like. I know what real checks feel like. And multiple times in that job, I spotted counterfeit dollars, counterfeit checks without even looking at them just by feel. And the moment I felt it, then I looked. I know what to look for, by the way. You can't counterfeit me. And so I, I felt it. This is wrong. I looked. I saw confirming signs and I said, this is counterfeit. In fact, I saved a guy's job one time because uh, I spotted a counterfeit check and he probably would have gotten fired because he, he didn't. But here's the thing. You want to get better theology? You want to get better doctrine? Know the real thing. Read your Bible. We have a podcast called Starting Points that is designed to help people get kind of a like 
Here, this is the starting point to this book of the Bible, this part of the Bible. This is a starting point to understanding. That's why we make such a big deal about studying the Bible, because when we know the real thing, sometimes you won't even know why it's wrong. You'll just know that's not right. Sometimes you won't even know why it's right. You'll just say, I think this is the thing to do. And it's because you know the real thing. And when you come across the counterfeit, you go, ooh, something's wrong there. I want to avoid being like Job's friends. I want to bring blessing and encouragement and comfort and aid to those who are suffering. And sometimes you come across situations that don't fit your theology and you have to have the humility to say, you know what, I'm going to back off here and just bring the love of God. Sometimes you'll come across situations that don't fit your theology and it's because you have bad theology and we need to get better theology by reading more of the Bible and leaning heavier into the Christian faith. There is never anything wrong with learning something new. Job's friend's problem was not, at least I think in, in Eliphaz and Bildad's case, it wasn't that they didn't care about him. It's that they weren't equipped to care about him well. Let's equip ourselves to care about other people well. Let's know Jesus better. Let's know his word, his word to us, the Bible, better. Let's ask God to fill us with more of his Holy Spirit so that in the moments when our theology fails us, we will be so full of the love of God that it gets past our weakness. Amen? And if you're hurting, if you're suffering, if you've been walking through and maybe you were like, I was in pain and then I had Christians who were more like Job's friends than they were like Jesus. I'm sorry about that. That's real. That's real. And if you are a Christian who wants to be more like Jesus and less like Job's friends. The more that we are like Jesus, the more that we know Jesus, the more we are full of the Holy Spirit of God. I believe that we can be bypassed in a very good way so that we come with hope and healing and help and aid and comfort. And we don't end up coming on, on, on Job and being bad friends and saying, Job, you got bad karma. Job, you've got secret sin. Job, it's all your fault. When none of that is the case. In this situation, none of that was the case. Job wasn't perfect, but he wasn't guilty of the things his friends were accusing him of. And that makes all the difference in the world. So let's bring Jesus to people in humility, in love, and with good, sound doctrine and theology because the truth matters. And I believe that God will bring us to that place of love, humility, and truth. God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. You can follow us at Faith on Hill on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can see the videos on Facebook, live stream every Sunday morning at 10.30 on our website, faithonhill.com, and the audio versions of all the podcasts we release from this one to Starting Points to 20-Minute Bible Study to Talk About Anything. All of those podcasts are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill. If you are watching this on Facebook, Give us a like, give us a share. We appreciate it. God bless you. We'll see you next week.